Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. This is Serious Film People, the podcast where we discuss Best Picture nominees from a given year. This year that we're working on is 1985, and this episode is Out of Africa. Out of Africa. <laughs> do, you hear, do you hear that roar of enthusiasm yes. coming about Out of Africa? I, I believe that was a yawning lion, but... It, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, if you can't tell, I think it was maybe a little bit of a tough set, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, Josh and Ken, how you guys doing? Doing I'm well. doing pretty good, man. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Uh, it was beautiful outside today, so got a nice jog in in the park, did a little bit of uh, lesson planning on the outside, and it's just a very pleasant, like, 71 here. It's good to get a weather report from whatever, uh, like eight weeks before this episode comes out, mm -hmm. <laughs> because this won't come out for a, a few months. But, you know, it's good to get a contemporaneous weather report. Yeah. And I'm excited about the Cardinals starting on Thursday, which by the time you hear this, it'll probably be the All-Star break. They'll, they'll be 10 games up on the Brewers in, in, in NL Central, for sure. Or the really poor starting pitching rotation will have shown to be a weakness. We all knew it was. We'll find out then, won't we? Yes. You'll know, listening to this, mm -hmm. who's right. Back to Af out of Africa, back into Africa. So this film is the best picture winner of 1985. And how about that? Yeah, what do you know? And as I was doing a little bit of research and prep for this, I found two lists, one by USA Today, one by Vulture, that ranked the best picture winners, one through 95. <laughs> and on both lists, this was something like 87th and 77th. So this is typically regarded as... Uh, a little bit of a bummer choice. Is that true to the reputation you guys had heard of out of Africa before watching the film? I've heard nothing but glowing things. This is one of the greatest films ever made, according to anybody who's ever seen it. Ken, get a more sarcastic tone if you're going to be sarcastic, so people can't tell that you're that you're kidding there. Uh, well, I, I, look, if the listeners, if the listeners want to believe this is the greatest film of all time, um, by all means. Take a stab at watching it. Um, you will probably you will probably get about what? What do you guys think? The average person who isn't who doesn't feel compelled to to watch all of this for the purposes of discussing it on a podcast, how far into the picture does the average person sit before turning it off? Uh, fifteen tops, fifteen minutes <laughs> out of two, two hours 161. and forty minutes. Sixty-one <laughs> through the credits, you got to wipe them tears away. <laughs> Josh, was this true to your reputation? The, the reputation you thought of with this film. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just for, for context, this is my first time seeing it was for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's, you know, as we've discussed many times, the reason for this podcast is like, I'm very into the Oscars as all of us are. So like, this has been on my radar as a best picture winner for, I don't know, 15 years, 15 plus years. And like, I've, even though it stars Robert Redford and Meryl Streep and one best picture, I have not been inclined to seek it out until I had to for homework so we could talk about it. And, um, yeah, my, 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 you know, the pop culture reputation that I'm aware of, at least, is that it's very long. It's very stately. It is a it is kind of the definitive like Oscar bait kind of movie that people kind of scoff at nowadays. Yeah. Uh, I think I mean, we can get more into that. Yeah, I, I want to go there a little later because it does kind of feel it kind of fills the place of a, an Oscar stereotype, I think, to a degree. Um, but yeah, this is a, this is an epic period piece romance drama. And that's what I knew about it. It's long. It's it's set in Africa, and it, and it's there's romance involved. And honestly, watching the film, 
uh, I'm a little surprised that that's the general, like, just the consensus walking away. People saw it and was like, yeah, it's an epic yeah. romance drama. I mean, we'll talk about how it was received in the moment and how, mm-hmm. like, it's kind of how it's maybe changed now, sure. you know, many years later. Uh, but I will just say, uh, talking about, like, its reputation, um, if I may introduce, once again, Josh's populist corner, I want to read some uh, <laughs> some some of the top letterbox reviews for Out of Africa. Uh, the very top one is from David Sims, host of the Blank Check podcast. Um, and uh, this is the top most liked review on Letterbox, two and a half stars. Uh, quote, I always, avo- I always avoided this film because it seemed boring. And it is boring. <laughs> so that's that's the most liked review. Then like the fourth or fifth most liked review is a two-star review that just says, F these boring ass Best Picture winners. Oh, so I think that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. That's like okay. what the movie's reputation, at least as as far as I was aware. Okay. Before watching, Ken, had you seen it before this week? Uh, I had seen I had seen scenes from the film. I'd seen parts of the film. Mm-hmm. I had never sat down and watched it from beginning to end. Um, we'll get into it a little later. I had seen the nighttime lion attack scene before. Oh. Um, and I had seen uh, the flight sequence when she mm-hmm. when he, when Redford takes uh, or <laughs> excuse me. Uh, uh, Dennis, Dennis takes Karen up in the uh, biplane or the, the his little. In my notes, I called. In my notes, take watch the movie. I called him Bob Redford every time. I'm not driver. Called him Dennis. <laughs> we. I want to get to Which that too. Is, kind of speaks to his performance, but we'll yes, we will talk about that. Too, I yes. very That's much want to outline. I very much yeah. want to get to that. Um, there. Yeah, I think. The, I think the plane in real life because this is based on a true story. TJ, you're going to probably talk about that in just a second. But the plane. Spoiler alert: the the real life guy. Dennis did, in fact, die in a plane crash. So the oh. plane itself, is you can't see. But the plane they used in the movie, the Gypsy Moth, is, I believe, on display at some museum um, somewhere. I, yeah, Josh. A plane they put in a movie in 1985 <laughs> is in a museum? Cool. Uh, all right. For die-hard <laughs> out-of-Africa fans that just... Is it I next like to the DeLorean? Yeah, exactly. exactly one person... Very excited. Fortunately, uh, they're not uh, listening to this podcast. To, adr- to address TJ's question that he just asked Ken, I not only had not seen the movie or any clips, I don't think I'd seen a frame of this movie outside of the poster, which is just like Bob Redford and Meryl Streep sitting on the ground in Africa. And that's the only thing I'd seen from the movie until two nights ago. And I, likewise, I think I had seen some stills. That seems to be maybe even like the limit of the hill of the movie, but also you know how it got made and what I think kind of sold it as well, was Bob Redford, Meryl Streep, stunning vistas of Africa. Um, I think, I mean, okay, I'll bury the lead. I won't bury the lead and I'll say I did not care for this movie at all. But, like, it's not, there's not things to recommend about it, but that's kind of the list that you just said right there. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. what there is to recommend about it. Meryl Streep is Meryl Streep. Like, there's a high floor there. You know, you're only going to get, it's only going to get so bad if Meryl Streep's in it. And she's great in this. And Bob Redford's Bob Redford one of the most charming people to ever step in front of a camera. You know, it is what it is. And Stunning Vistas, well done second unit directors who ever <laughs> shot these Stunning Vistas. Yeah. Second unit here was top notch. And then the music's really nice. And like, you know, whatever, costumes. And it's, it's nice to look at. But beyond that, ooh, man. <laughs> this, is, so, this is tough. Yeah, so let's get into some of the kind of background boilerplate business. This was, as Ken mentioned, it's based on a true story. So the screenplay by Kurt Ludke, sorry, Kurt, was yeah. <laughs> based on Out of Africa and other writings by Karen Blixen, the real-life Karen Blixen, and other other writings that were adapted by Judith Thurman, particularly things written under Blixen's nom de plume, Isaac Dennison. Likely, she had to take Isaac Dennison because 
it's really, really hard to get published if you were a woman in the 1910s. Also, they're adapting uh, from Silence Will Speak by Errol Trebinsky. Sorry again, Errol, for bother- messing up your last name. Do we know when she actually pu- got this uh, memoir published? It's the 30s, I think. I think, it's, yeah, because she, she, she was out of Africa starting in like the mid-20s. She was uh, titularly out of Africa yes. <laughs> by this point, yes. Let's be clear. She had a farm in Africa. Yes. Oh in, the Nagong, in the foot of the Nagong Hills. In case you didn't know... She had a farm in Africa. <laughs> she did. Um, so it's also directed by Sidney Pollack, who fans of serious film people will have heard before, namely on the Michael Clayton episode. He plays Marty, Marty in right. the Michael Clayton episode. So Sidney Pollack died rather young. I believe he was 72, 73 when in he died. 2008, I think. Yeah, yeah, in 2008. I think he, did he have a heart attack? I'm not totally sure about that. Uh, I can't remember the I can't remember the the, the cause of death, but it okay. was um, it was surprising if that's what you're getting mm-hmm. getting at. Yeah, uh, he died from cancer, and mm-hmm. it was he'd been diagnosed only ten month ten months prior to his death, oh. and it's not really publicly known what kind of cancer. Some people have said pancreatic, some people said stomach, some people said of an unknown origin. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was kind of sudden, where like he kind of like backed out of an HBO thing, and then okay. like was dead a few weeks later, a few months oh, later. My. So, yeah. Um, so he began his directing career in 1961 and directed mostly television for about a decade. And if you go and look at his filmography, you'll see he did an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, does an episode of Breaking Point, an episode of The Fugitive, among other things, and then breaks into feature films. Probably his most famous feature film, uh, early feature film was the 1969 film they shoot horses don't they which i have not yeah. seen have you guys seen that one Neither have I. I have not no, seen but, it nope um, okay. i've definitely heard of it yeah but there's a great website i like to look at that does lists of like you know thousand greatest movies called they shoot pictures don't they yes yeah yeah yeah. yeah it's a great which, website exactly. uh he then in 72 directs jeremiah johnson starring robert redford as which well as- anyone who's been on the internet in the last 10 years will recognize an image from. Yes. There's an extremely, extremely popular gif from Jeremiah Johnson of Robert Redford looking over his shoulder and nodding appreciatively. Mm, and yep. people think it's Zach Galifianakis, but it's not. It's Robert Redford in a beard. Uh-huh. And it's from Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah, is that uh-huh. the first film the two of them worked on together? Because they made a I few. believe so. In right, fact- af- right after, in 1973, they make Ken. 1973. Uh- Starring the Babs. Oh, The Way We Were. The Way We Were, which has uncredited rewrites by Francis Ford Coppola and Patty Chayefsky. Casual. Yeah. (laughs) His next film is The Yakuza, which fans of serious film people will recognize from last week's episode. It is written by the brothers Schrader. Paul and Larry Schrader wrote The Yakuza. We then get Three Days of the Condor, which I have not seen, but I think both of you like quite a bit. We both both referenced it in the uh, 75 recap episode. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the next t- taut spy thriller. It is. It is taut. Pollock and Pollock is in that movie. He's got a small cameo. I think as a cab driver. He's actually uh, in that one. In addition to directing it. Interesting. He then makes Tootsie, which is perhaps his most famous movie in terms of the life of the film. I would say. I think so. And that yes. one I think has maybe aged the best and has the highest recognition out of his filmography. It's on the AFI Top 100, I believe. He makes mm-hmm. that right before Out of Africa. So that he's literally coming off of Correct. Tootsie and going into making this film in Kenya. Yeah. So then throughout the, the remainder of the 90s, he makes The Firm with Tom Cruise, Sabrina. Hell yes. Sabrina. Dude. Hell yeah. No, don't, don't, don't brush past it. I'm trying. The Firm. The Firm is Tom actually. Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman. It's a really solid uh, legal thriller. John Grisham. Yeah. 
Woo! Uh, sounds like give that me the gave, firm, bro. Sounds like it gave you a firm for sure. <laughs> I wish we had movies like The Firm every year, and we used to, and we don't anymore. Not to keep saying that kind of thing, but like, it's tough. I want The Firm back. Give me back The Firm. They don't make pictures like they used to. No. 1995 Sabrina, which is a personal favorite of my dad. My dad loves Sabrina, starring Harrison Ford. I love the original. I, I probably love the original more than the remake, but the remake, it holds up. It's a, it's a really, really lovely little uh, little film. I believe my wife really enjoys this both versions of Sabrina, but I think she definitely likes the Harrison Ford version of Sabrina, yeah. He then makes Random Hearts, and finally, his last feature film directing credit is The Interpreter, starring Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman. I saw that in theaters in high school, and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> Granted, I was in high school, but... No, I didn't like that. I remember seeing it in theaters as well when it came out. That's like, probably, what is that, 2006, right? That is 2005. Oh, five. So, okay, yeah. it's right before, it's before he does Michael Clayton. But it's, um, yeah, that one had a lot of, I, I recall that film having quite a bit of um, anticipation before it came out. And then when it came out, it just kind of like dropped. It was just there. Yeah. He, he did uncredited directing work on Amazing Grace, which is a documentary about Aretha Franklin, and that was his last credit. Just to speak a little bit to what we said earlier about him acting, he had 42 directing credits, 43 acting credits. And if you scroll through, you'll see Entourage, The Sopranos, Will and Grace. He is fantastic. I would have, I would have called that one shut. out. Eyes wide shut. In particular, his comedy performance in Will and Grace, he has a recurring role as Will's father. It's fantastic. I've only seen him in Michael Clayton and Eyes Wide Shut, where he plays similar-ish characters yeah. between those two movies. I think um, he is outstanding in both. Mm-hmm. Like that, he's he's a big part of like the opening few minutes of Eyes Wide mm-hmm. Shut in particular, and uh, he's also kind of like got a climactic conversation with Tom Cruise to an extent. Mm. He's excellent. He's really really good. I've only seen a handful of the films that we mentioned, but for me, he was always a director that I admired and knew was respected and regarded but also someone kind of like we talked about with Sidney Lumet who was more of like a workman if that makes sense what I'm trying to say here is he was not someone who was I think regarded as being as technically savvy and as individually expressive as someone like Kubrick for example but somebody that was able to kind of come in and get the job done in a variety of different types of films and genres does that ring true to you guys? It's funny you mentioned Sidney Lumet because not only do they obviously share a first name, but I've often thought that in any given give give me any Sidney Lumet film or any Sidney Pollock film, you could honestly have switched out the director in those movies with the other Sidney, and he would have been probably just as good behind the camera. There, there should be a great book called The Other Sidney. It's about <laughs> those two. For me, whenever Sidney Pollock was brought up, it always takes me second because I'm like, wait. Because I think of Kevin Pollock first, the comedian, <laughs> ah. and I have to like, there's like a half second little mental jump where I have to like go, like, oh no no no, not Kevin, the, the director, not not the comedian. But Sidney Pollock did have a killer Christopher Walken impression. Uh, Frankenstein never scared me. <laughs> Marsupials do. <laughs> the fast. Uh, Kevin Pollock doing Christopher Walken on the Bob and Tom Show, which had to have been like 20 years ago at this point, is among the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. At least it was when I was like 11 or 12 when I first heard it. <laughs> Uh, but but Josh, did you have any other sort of your thoughts on Sidney Pollack before watching this film? No, I mean, again, before watching this, I'd only I'd seen him in Eyes Wide Shut as an actor. I'd seen him in Michael Clayton as an actor, and I'd seen Three Years of the Condor like three years ago, which I honestly don't remember a ton of it. Um, so I didn't have. Um, it is taught. I knew I knew he made this, and I knew he won Best Director for this. He did. Um, which we can talk about our opinions and the merits of that, but that was really all I knew about him as a filmmaker. 
I, I think that's a good time to pivot then to the Academy Awards, since that's kind of what we do here. So out of Africa... <laughs> that's how we keep the lights on. <laughs> yeah. Out of Africa was nominated for 11 Academy Awards at the... That's wild. 1986 ceremony, but I don't know. 11 Academy Awards. It wins seven of those 11. The seven that it wins are Best Original Score, John Barry, who you might know from making the iconic James Bond uh, score. Yep. Wow. Yeah. He's he's also, he he wins here and then he wins a few years later. We'll have it eventually when we get to that year for film, but he scores Dances with the Wolves. Mm. So, um, the, neither one of which are particularly iconic or memorable, I would say. Um, not compared to James Bond, for sure, or his fantastic score for The Lion in Winter, which he did back in 68. Oh. Um, uh, I like this score a lot, as I kind of already said. But Alan Silvestri not even nominated for Back to the Future? Are you fucking kidding me? That Save it fuck for the wrap-up. Save it for the wrap-up. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what Josh actually watched about 20 minutes into turning on Out of Africa. Out of Africa and Back to the Future. Yep. I and will all- save it for the recap episode. You're right. It also wins Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Screenplay, Adapted, Best Director, Sidney Pollack, and Best Picture of which Sidney Pollack was the only producer named there. The other nominations that it did not take home little golden statuettes for were Best Film Editing, four editors on this one, Best Costume I think Design. I actually pretty good, too. More on that later, but I agree. Okay. Uh, costume Design, Milena Cananero, who is still costume designing, and yes. I believe most recently won for the Grand Budapest Hotel. That's correct. She's a four-time winner, and um, she actually, her first Oscar... Came for Barry Lyndon. For anybody oh, listening wow. from the very beginning of this, our, our, uh, our there podcast. There we go. Yeah. Another movie that's almost impossible to get through. Uh, <laughs> I like that movie. Best best Supporting Actor, Klaus Maria Brandauer. And then Best Wild act- nomination. Best, Wild nomination. Oh, you, you wait, Josh. And then finally, Best Actress for Meryl Streep. Who? Uh, she was in Doubt. I don't know if you've seen Doubt. Her, her best performance, honestly. Doubt. Oh, she's the lady in uh, Don't Look Up. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Um, she has yes. the smoking president. Don't look up. Right, right. Uh, uh, Klaus Maria Brandauer. You may have known him from Never Say Never Again, where he played Maximilian Largo, which I'm watching it. I'm going, this guy looks familiar. Also, this guy looks like a Bond villain, and that's exactly what he was <laughs> familiar to me from. He could have played Vladimir Putin. Just throwing that out there. Uh, the other award business here this wins best screenplay sound and cinematography at the baftas that's it at the baftas it was nominated for the dga but loses to steven spielberg steven spielberg for the color purple and at the golden globes it won best picture best score and best supporting actor klaus maria he was also the national board of review winner and this got second place for best film of the year at national board of review who who ended up winning best supporting actor at the oscars um don amiche for cocoon for cocoon oh yeah mm. so out of africa had a budget of 31 million dollars and it grossed 227.5 million and that means a lot of people saw it that's a lot can we just, of people saw this before we move on i want to take a moment to yeah i i did i had to i had to look up the adjustments on that this film adjusted for inflation Made $633 million worldwide at the box office. This made Top Gun Maverick money. Yeah. For content. Well, I mean, they do have a lot in common. They both have planes. (laughs) Yes. Um, 
And when he took Meryl Streep up, I'm like, is there any way they're going to, this mission's impossible. Oh. Um, I was expecting Lady Gaga to start playing as they flew into the sunset together. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, Meryl Streep, Robert Redford. The storyline of the movie is something like this. Follows the life of Karen Blixen, who establishes a plantation in Africa. You can get this out of the first couple minutes. I had a farm in Africa. Her life is complicated by a husband of convenience, Bora Blixen, played by Klaus Maria. A true love, Dennis, played by Robert Redford. Troubles on the plantation, schooling of the natives, war, and catching a venereal disease from her husband. (laughs) Which sounds like a very weird way to end the storyline, and I think it is, but syphilis plays a prominent role in this movie. It's almost a character in itself. Okay, I I got some feedback on the podcast that some listeners wanted us to get, like, set up the movie a little earlier. That way, like, they know what we're talking about in case they haven't watched in a while. And, like, I think you did a fine job there. But, like, this movie's kind of hard to, like, summarize and set up, I feel like. Because it's kind of, I feel like this is so scattershot and random. Like, it's very vignette-y to me. It's not surprising that... It's not surprising that not only is this based on nonfiction, it's based on three separate nonfiction pieces. And I think, like, the way the story, the movie plays out reflects that. And, like, as you both know, and as you've said on this podcast before, TJ, I'm very into structure and act breaks and stuff. And this was hard for me. This just mm, this was tough. It just goes through. It's going from kind of what you imagine that the film is basically just moments that Karen Blixen could remember from her time in Africa, things that stood out. And should we just jump from moment to moment to moment to moment? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is like, obviously if you watch, I mean, if once you actually sit and watch the whole thing, obviously like the arc is Karen and Dennis's relationship, Meryl Streep and Bob Redford. Uh, As you said, TJ, she moves to Africa from Denmark to be a Baroness, to marry a Baron, but she's marrying him again. Like she was sleeping with his brother back in Denmark her brother didn't want her so because she didn't have any prospects in denmark she couldn't really marry in denmark she decided to move to kenya and be with this baron and be a baroness so that was like again a marriage of convenience shout out to klaus who plays both brothers Mm. shout out to klaus and then um she meets this game hunter dennis and like they slowly you know fall in love i guess and that's kind of the arc is like their relationship but i don't think they kiss until an hour and 15 minutes in so like if if that relationship is like the arc of the movie, it's it's not though. If if you're getting an hour and fifteen minutes in before they even kiss, to and me like that that's... is the midpoint though in a two and a half hour film. And it's not it's not a particularly like roaring romance. There, there's not no, a whole lot of steam really not. in this in this. Well, okay, okay. There are a few moments that I identified that I thought were like legitimately erotic. Oh. Uh, number number one when he washes her hair. That's incredibly erotic. I will say, I will say that that that's got to be one of the takeaways from the movie, though. How many people left the theater thinking about imagining Robert Redford giving them a hair wash versus how many people left the theater liking the movie? There's that Gaga song, "Wash My Hair, Wash My Hair." <laughs> There's a moment a few minutes later, or I don't know how many minutes later. I, <laughs> time is whatever in this movie, uh, where she gets like a bloody lip and he dabs her lip with a handkerchief. Oof. That was pretty erotic too. Except also, I'm, I'm sitting there going, "She has syphilis. Don't touch that." this is this is maybe a weird thing for me to find like hot but i kind of did is when there's a lioness kind of approaching karen and bob redford standing there with a gun and she's like shoot it shoot it and he's like no no no, let's just wait and see what she does his like command and his cool in the face of danger i thought was pretty you know i'm like yeah bob redford's got it um it goes both other than that though 
it goes both ways though and that scene I, I get what you're saying I kind of I read that I, I read that from him he's got he's got a magnetism let's just be honest that's what Redford carries to any role in any picture over the second half of the 20th century um I also part of me is kind of like no he there's a part of him that just wants the, to see if the lioness will actually get her <laughs> this terrible I don't think so <laughs> this this baroness but- out, okay, out in the so, land that she has no business being in. Right. Okay. We'll talk about that in a second too, because I have notes on that. Um, I guess all to say though, TJ is like I think that I think that the bulk of the story and like the point of the story, if there is one, is to is this romance between them, and like there's so much stuff that's not that included in the movie that seems kind of like half baked and kind of just like there briefly and then not really brought up again. Like the school, like the schooling and the crops and like her kind of like reaching out to the local tribal leaders and trying to work with them like i don't know that's there but like oh i want to get to that because this i don't know there's a, there's a there's a there's a theme throughout the film and it's i'm assuming it's in the novel none of us have read the memoirs of karen blixen but she's obviously got a certain distaste for colonialism that comes through i think in the film but the film doesn't do a whole don't doesn't spend a whole lot of time or put much effort into really Really criticizing. Can you, can you put a pin in that real quick? I, I do want to come back to that. Those are both sure. very, very important things. Um, I just wanted to get real quickly since since we talked about this was sold as Rob Redford, Meryl Streep. Let's go there. What do you think of Meryl in this movie? I think she's reliable, Meryl. Here she's do, she's playing a Danish woman. Um, I think as is. I think we're pretty expecting from her at this point. She's doing a pretty good uh, accent. She's obviously the whole film is in English. She listened to tapes of the real Karen Blixen speaking to get the accent right. Is what I read online. Uh, but not everybody can can nail that. But Streep can. You, she's pretty reliable. You can pretty much guarantee she if she puts the effort in, she's going to get the accent. Last year we had quite a high profile Dutch accent in a Best Picture nominee, and it did not go as well as this <laughs> one went. I would say uh, that'd be Tom it Hanks, the Elvis. <laughs> It, uh, yeah, I think she's really good in this too. Uh, I agree. I mean, like I said earlier, like you kind of have a high floor with Meryl Streep. It's only you know, you know, the movies. She's always good. You know, she's she's very reliable, like Ken said, and uh, I think she's good in this too. Like it, this isn't her career best work by any means, but you know, it's it's still Meryl Streep in the mid '80s. You know, like this is her sixth uh, career Oscar nomination for this film. It's the fourth time she's up for Best Actress. I think she I think she delivers the kind of performance you would expect from Meryl. The thing that throws me off, and this is going to the, I guess, the backstory or kind of the pre-production, she had to she had to convince Pollock to hire her for this role because apparently Pollock's first inclination was for someone who could bring more sex appeal, and he didn't think Meryl Streep could do that. I read wow. that too. Yeah. So she had to she had to convince him um, by dressing particularly sexy for her first audition and meeting him. I believe she emphasized her breasts right. when she went to her first audition with what she was wearing uh. to uh, to really put her sexiest foot forward, which I don't know if I like that. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it's what the role calls for. I was going to say, mind, it, but, does speak, yeah. it does speak to something. I mean, we're talking Meryl Streep, even at this time, she's already becoming Meryl Streep, but people are already referencing her. She's a pop culture um, name. People know her as being... Uh, I mean, she's already done Sophie's Choice. She's already done The Deer Hunter. She's already done Kramer vs. Kramer. She's already done Silkwood. She's already done... In less than uh, a decade. Uh, Heartburn. She's mm-hmm. been she's been in a household name for less than a decade. She's already got two Oscars at this point. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. yeah. she's wow. very well respected. Um, but even she has to 
she has to degrade herself a bit to get this role. I mean, think about what what it means to have to dress sexy to convince the director to hire you. And I'm not sure to for what purpose Pollock is is expecting a uh, a lead with sex appeal because honestly watching this movie there's not much call for a lot of sex appeal i mean i i get that a lot of people are attracted to robert redford and meryl streep is a beautiful woman but that's not really drawing people into the movie right like once you're actually sitting in the theater having to suffer through it so pauline kale writing for the new yorker at the time found this film unsatisfying, and she said that Streep, quote, is animated in the early scenes, she's amusing when she acts ditzy, and she has some oddly affecting moments. Her character doesn't deepen, though, or come to mean more to us. And Redford doesn't give out with anything for her to play against. That's that is that is kind of true. <laughs> well, TJ, you put in the outline something about acting versus movie stardom? I believe Ken put that in, but now I oh, think it's a okay. good time to pivot toward... Uh, movie stardom, which is Mr. Robert Redford. And Pauline Kael's... Did you guys agree with what she said there about Redford doesn't give her much to play against? Yeah, I think yeah. I think the screenplay is is not serving her well, and I don't think the actors she's playing off of are serving her all that all that well. Um, she's doing a lot of heavy lifting, and I don't feel like she's probably... She doesn't have a lot. To Josh's point, there's not enough structure in this film for her to really provide additional arc to her character. There's not a whole lot she can bring outside of the material. Yeah, and I also agree with about the Bob Redford not really giving her much to play off of. And I guess, I guess Ken, if you put that in the outline, I, I really think you nailed it with that distinction between um, great actors and great movie stars. And like, I'm not trying to bes- besmirch Bob Redford by any means. No. I think he's um, he's an incredible screen presence. Yes, but like, I guess, I guess, like what I think is appealing about Red- Robert Redford's harder to pinpoint than what's appealing about Meryl Streep. And I think it's more charisma, which is harder to quantify and harder to like, again, harder to pinpoint. Um, like you watch something like All the President's Men yep. and you see like Dustin Hoffman acting alongside Bob Redford. And you're like, Hoffman is one of the great actors of the last 50 years. And Bob Redford's one of the most charismatic people of the last 50 years. But like you kind of see a difference in how they perform in that movie when they're side by side. And I think you see it here too with Meryl and, Meryl and Bob, like... And I, I, I guess it kind of works in the context of the movie that he is just like this extremely appealing, extremely charismatic guy that Karen just wants to be around. But um, I wouldn't look at this and be like, hell yeah, I hope Robert Redford got an Oscar nomination for this, you know, because it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, with Robert Redford, it's interesting. You watch all of, I, I like a, a whole lot of his movies. I like a whole I lot of his too. performances. In particular, I think he's fantastic in J.C. Shandor's All is Lost. Uh, it's kind of a castaway-like movie if nobody's ever seen it. He's he's basically in a boat at sea, yeah. dri- drifting at sea for the entire picture. Um, he's fantastic in that. He's very good in The Sting, which I believe is the only time he was ever actually nominated for his acting. Um, he's he's really good as the Sundance Kid. But through all of these films... He's good in Three Years of the Condor, previously mentioned. Yes, Three Days of the Condor, The yeah. Natural, which is, I think, the mm. year or two right before, actually, out of Africa. Right before, um, right before actually. Um, he's good in all of those movies. He's he's sufficient. But at the same time, it's it's hard to separate the Robert Redford from any of those characters. When you're watching it, I see Robert Redford. And I like Robert Redford, but that's what I see when I'm watching the movies. But I think his some of his best movies, though, that's okay. Yeah. Like, in this movie, that's okay. Like, um, something like Ocean's Eleven, 
it's okay if you see George Clooney's in, in Danny Ocean's role. It's okay if you see Brad Pitt and Rusty's role because like, these the, guys are like... And that's the point of Ocean's 12, actually. Right, yeah. That, that is very much... Like, Ocean's 12 very much makes that the text, which I think is why Ocean's 12 is a, a genius movie. But, like, seeing these these characters are larger than life. So if you see larger-than-life actors in place of the character, that, like, kind of works narratively. I think it works narratively here if you see Bob Redford as Dennis. It works narratively if you see Bob Redford as the natural. And um, that's why I think, like, his best movies, it kind of, like, doesn't matter that his large-in-life persona is overshadowing the character. In fact, it actually helps the movie, I think. And to the point, it, w- that is what made a movie star, historically yeah, speaking. exactly. Like, yeah, I think yeah, Cary yeah. Grant, Cary Grant was ne- never won an Oscar. Cary Grant, I think, only had one Oscar nomination in all his entire career. Never won, but he's always Cary Grant and was the biggest box office star for decades and is still an icon of the screen. Gene Siskel in the Chicago Tribune said... My basic problem with this otherwise sumptuous and well-acted film is that I was never able to accept Redford in character. He seems distant to the point of distraction. He's not convincing in his period outfits. He looks and acts as if he just walked out of the safari fitting room at Abercrombie & Fitch. (laughs) There are some scenes where he's posing and it looks awkward. That said, particularly when he's out with Karen and they're on their own personal safari... Right after he gets done washing her hair, they're just kind of relaxing by a river. That is like, that, to me, I'm like, that looks like Robert Redford being him totally himself. As comfortable as he could be outside, in nature, just relaxing with it. So on that note, I do have to read another top letterbox review, which is maybe like the 10th most highest rate review. This is a three-star review, uh, I believe from a woman. And she says, quote, the first half of this is very dull, but then the scene where Robert Redford gently washes Meryl Streep's hair happens, and you kind of forget how dull everything else has been, question mark. And then there's a scene where Robert Redford is standing on a porch with one leg all the way up on the porch railing, and he's wearing these hot safari boots, and you start to wonder if this is the best movie you've ever seen, question mark. Wow. Wow. So the horniness pushed that to a three-star rating, I think. The horniness for Bob Redford. So, and maybe that's the answer to, like, who is this for? Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about there are dad movies. I wonder if yeah. this is a mom movie. I don't think my own mother has seen it, but I wonder if it's... Maybe moms in the 80s, yeah. you know, who identified with Meryl Streep and thought Bob Redford was handsome. I think any... Uh, that, that could be it. Any men and women who liked Bob Redford were interested in this film. And at the same time, yeah, look at the look at the films Meryl Streep has been in up to this point. Like Kramer versus Kramer, The French Lieutenant's Woman Right, Sophie's Choice... These are a series of date night movies where one half of the relationship wants to see Meryl Streep and the other half is being dragged into the theater to watch it with their significant other. Now I'm not saying it's 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 men or women, it can be it can be any combination thereof. But the point is uh this this is like, I think a, a really long date night movie and one half of the relationship better be getting something out of it after the movie's over. That's all I'm saying. Ken Ken, are you taking dates to see Sophie's Choice? I have Did not. Did you mention Sophie's I, Choice is a date night movie? No, I, I stopped taking people to see movies like that after uh, four four months, three weeks, two days didn't pan out for that relationship. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's get into the themes. We identified two or three main themes. We've talked a little bit about the romance of it. So if we want to go back to the romance real quickly and just kind of end that that portion of the discussion, do you guys have other things to say about the degree to which the romance between the two leads works or does it, or even the overall romantic tone and romantic approach to the material. I think to an extent it works just 
not to beat a dead horse, largely because it's Meryl Streep and Bob Redford. And, um, but like, it, it takes so long to get where it's such a slow burn. And like, I don't know if the payoff is worth it. And it's constantly interrupted. It's constantly interrupted. I guess the scene, um, uh, you know, to, to paraphrase Aladdin, there is a, a whole new world scene where he takes her in a plane and like shows her a magic carpet ride, which is cool. Um, and that cuts direct, it cuts directly from the plane, like flying into the sunset and then cuts directly to them in bed. So it's like, you know, kind of implying that the, the magic carpet ride, so to speak was foreplay. Um, and already kind of called out like the scenes that I found to be kind of erotic, but like, I, I guess like imagine what this movie would be if like Paul Verhoeven made it or something like that, because like, there is like something there about how this is supposed to, like a supposedly proper, you know, she's a baroness. So there's like an arist. This is an aristocratic person. So like there's like a high society versus like a primal urge to jump Bob Redford's bones kind of thing happening. She's married, even though, you know, they're not really in love, but she is married. So like there's like this, this naughtiness to it. And like they're out in the wilderness on safari in a tent, you know, like there is something there like that contrast. But like the movie's not really interested in exploring it, I don't think. And I think it's a missed opportunity. I felt like the romance is kind of forced in this movie throughout. Like there's, but that's also like the whole point of the movie, you know. Which is <laughs> that's which, why the movie doesn't work. Which is why, yeah, that's exactly what, right. Like early on, okay, she's she's friends with with Brar, her her eventual husband. They're friends in the beginning. Which, by the way, there's a thirty one million dollar budget. This movie, it was all into Africa. Oh my god! Because I want to talk <laughs> before we continue. Before I forget about it. Within the opening five minutes, before oh, there's even credits. God, the shot of them sitting on what is clearly a prop a branch of a tree yes. with a green screen behind them yes. looks like something out of 1985 green screen. Yes, it yes. looks like something. Very, very clear. It looks like a Hitchcock film in the 50s. It looks like it looks like a set shot with a green screen behind it. It was probably rear projection. Right? Um, you've got her running off to Kenya to marry a person she's friends with but not in love with. And at some point during the first half of the film, she kind of is supposedly falling for Broer. She falls for a bit. But it takes up so little of the film and so little of our attention before World War World War One pops in and he's taken away from her. And then shortly thereafter, she ends up with syphilis. And so that, that doesn't feel like a love story at all. She apparently is falling in love with him, but I don't really feel it watching the movie. There's just not, a much, not enough given to that. And then, what do we get? We get her falling in love with Dennis, and yet Dennis is gone just as often as he's present. He's constantly flitting away, and we're interrupted by her taking care of her farm, because she has a farm in Africa. And her taking care of the Nagong Hills. <laughs> her taking care of, well, they're, they're telling us she's, you know, she's got a, a relationship or a, a care for her um should we call them employees? I, I want to get to that too because this speaks to the colonialism factor. That's but the next thing on my next yeah. There's it's oh that's that's a brutal aspect of the film that the film doesn't really tackle appropriately. Let's, well, let's go there then. So we're we're in World War One and the immediate years after World War One. I, I believe they ring in the new year of 1919 during this film, and we have. Dutch and British imperialists colonizing and occupying areas of Africa, namely Kenya, Nairobi, etc., which is all a background of the film that at times, in my view of watching the movie, 
at times was commented upon and at times seemed like it was about to take a turn toward having a strong stance about the dangers and the violence of colonialist exploitation. But for me personally, it it's kind of window dressing for the rest of the movie. It seems like it's a little bit like, you know, colonialism's bad, but damn, isn't Africa pretty? Yeah. Was Th- that this is how that ring with you guys? It feels like a film that that's an impressive period recreation that wants to be a morality-based history le- history lesson, but ends up completely being smothered by the the melodrama of these two comparative these two comparatively less stuffy Europeans, let's call them Karen and Dennis failing to hide their distaste for what's going around them and all the far stuffier Europeans around them. That's it. They're, they're still, at the end of the day, Europeans, which, by the way, we haven't mentioned. Redford's supposed to be an Englishman in this movie. He is? He's suppo- yes, Dennis was English. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank God he doesn't attempt an accent, but yes, letting that sit there a second. Uh, you got these two Europeans who are falling in love, we're told, more than shown, really, in the film. And... Yeah, there's there's this constant presence of the colonialism because it's set in British uh, East Africa. Um, obviously, there's a portion of the film, a very small, relatively small portion of the film that occurs during World War One because Germany at the time, along with the Dutch and the English and to some degree the French, the Germans have a great deal of uh, colonial power in Africa as well. And there's concerns that the two colonies and the, the settlers living there are going to come at odds. And so all of the Englishmen have to get together, they have to arm themselves, and they have to go stand off against the German mm-hmm. settlers. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, this film, despite taking place during World War One, we never see anything relating, anything coming close to uh, a battle or any kind of skirmish or anything related to the war other than she has to, she or voluntarily decides to lead a group of, of the Kukui people on a mission to deliver stuff to her husband and, and the, the, the other settler, male settlers. Do you think that's outside of the scope of the film, or are you making the argument that it's conveniently left out because we've got a sumptuous PG romance going on? Oh, I think I, I, I think it's a dist- I think Pollock considers a distraction and kind of unnecessary to, to even address it. Plus, it's not. Let's be honest. This is adapted from her memoirs. Karen probably never saw anything relating to World War One, other than the one time she allegedly brought stuff to her husband and the men on the front. We'll call them the front lines. I'm using air quotes there because I don't know what the front lines look like. They don't explain or tell us that. I, I, I'm losing. I'm losing the plot here. Ken, are you making a point about colonialism? Well, I'm. We're going there. This film seems to be touching on colonialism at times. There's obviously the Kukui people. She's. They come with the land. It's their land, but of course, colonial powers have taken over. And if you're gifted a, if you're gifted a farm, well, the people who live there already come with the land. Now there is a suggestion at one point. She's she's talking with um, one of the youths, one of the younger Kukui boys. There's a suggestion that they're paying them. I'm not sure what form of payment, but there's some suggestion of payment, which is why I don't know if we're supposed to think of them as indentured servants or as as employees i'm not sure you can't imagine that they're being paid very much at all anyway also the fact that it's originally their land um but can can i let me jump in real quick um ken ken's brought up a a number of kind of 
the historical background elements of colonialism. Josh, what are your thoughts on colonialism? <laughs> in general? Or like as it relates to this movie? <laughs> I purposely phrased that question that way, but in relation to this movie. I think Ken is right, at least in what I think what Ken was saying there, uh, about how like it is like kind of addressed. Or, you know, I think the movie takes like an anti-colonialist stance, kind of? But like, honestly, like, in terms of like, social issues this takes more of a feminist stance Mm. like this is like a very not intersectional movie at all because it's like Mm. hey colonialism sucked but the women were also kind of treated poorly you know and so karen kind of taking the power is i guess kind of like the rachel Patton fight song moment of the movie i guess but um it strikes me as wrong-headed i think the the point of view of the movie okay like how so i i would not call this a white savior movie because it's not but it, it you're making a face. You think it I? Is? I think it kind of is, but okay. Maybe it. Maybe it proceed. Okay. Sorry. Backing up. I haven't. I honestly haven't really thought that through. So don't like hold me to that. But like, no, that's fine. I'm just gonna talk. I'm just gonna talk through this. If you have a movie set in 1913 in British occupied Kenya, and there are a number of stories you could tell by setting your movie in that time and place, and to tell a story through the eyes of the white colonialists. I think it's just the least interesting story you could tell, mm. given all the characters and all the stories that are possible in this time and place. And so I think the movie is, it's two hours and 40 minutes, and I think it's extremely boring. And I think like the perspective of the movie is just, it's kind of dead on arrival for me. And I think if they were to make this movie now and make a movie that's set in 1913 Kenya, British occupied Kenya, they would not make it through Meryl Streep's eyes. It would probably be through, some, through someone else's perspective, I would think. Farah, um, maybe and, Farah. Could be far, honestly, far, yeah, far is a good, a good bet, honestly. Um, I don't want to talk about this now necessarily, but, and maybe, maybe they talk about this this episode, or maybe we talk about this in the 1985 recap episode, but I think this is kind of like the apotheosis of the Academy kind of being really interested in like a globalizing world. And I don't think it's an accident that if you look at the best picture winners from the 1980s, most of them don't take place in America. Hmm. And like at the time, the world was getting smaller. Nixon had opened up China a decade earlier and like suddenly like the world was available to us. So, you know, the last emperor, Amadeus, platoon out of Africa, uh, chariots of fire does not take place in the United States. Gandhi does not place, take place in the United States. And like, I think this is like, and again, out of Africa is kind of like the prime example of Americans in Hollywood being fascinated by what's happening in other parts of the world. But like, not but being fascinating like a really surface level just, kind of um uh, uh uh um observer kind of way uh what's the what's tor- the tourism for? tourist tourism or um like a leering kind of like looking at it as an outsider like uh almost a fetishism um, with the exotic fetishization that's what i'm trying to say i was looking for that word thank you uh fetishization of the exotic yeah and um Again, it's just not it's not a very interesting perspective. Well, the perspective still, of the movie is just not interesting at all to me. Because it still needs to be palatable. I and guess. I, I, well no, I'm not I'm not saying it does. I think that's that's the problem is that it's it's trying to give you this uh tourism of Africa, but something that It really is. But something that you can be is easily digestible. And let me back up and say, this is I guess kind of a white savior story. Uh, I I take it back that it, when I said it wasn't. What I don't what I don't mean is though there are some like moments in this, some framing that I like find very uncomfortable from like a racial perspective, and I can talk about those moments in, in detail. I wouldn't necessarily say like the movie's racist per se, but like 
it um the, the African characters are largely just like set dressing all the with sub- a very very little exception. All the substance goes by the wayside because while on the one hand we get Karen treat trying to treat the Kikui people with some level of respect, but on the flip side during Karen and Dennis's like little sojourn into the the bush, you've got the Kikui people who are accompanying them just left standing quietly off in the background while they're having a lovely they are romantic dinner. Yeah, yes, they're literally yeah. part of the set. It takes a very patronizing view towards it takes extremely patronizing view and also like i guess to uh, you know you know elaborate on what i alluded to earlier like the some of the framing i found to be a little uncomfortable is like a lot of the african characters are framed in the exact same way they frame the uh, african wildlife and so it's kind of equating the people with like the lions and the monkeys and like that sucks but like that's there in this movie, and that's that's the part that I would say. Well, that's racist. There's a great there's a, there's a great podcast called Yo Is This Racist, where they examine like older media and look at it like examining what was culturally acceptable decades ago and is no longer culturally acceptable mostly. So like there was multiple times watching this where I'm like, Yo, is this racist? Is this uh? I'm not very comfortable right now with how they're doing this. It, it is about a white lady named Karen bossing around young black children. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it is actually. You you could sum go ahead. That's a summary that you put on the back of the uh, the 4K release of Out of Africa. What I mean, what do you think though, TJ, about what I was just saying about the the perspective and and the perspective, the point of view, of the story, and all that kind of stuff? Like, what do you think? Well, I hadn't considered the framing the way you had, so I thought that was a very interesting point. The my favorite scene of the movie because it's the one for me that I thought was oh this is about to turn into something interesting, and then I don't think it really cashed in on that is the New Year's party. Because at the New Year's party, there's a lot of things going on other than her just smacking that guy, which I a nice street smack there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was then as she's dancing with Bob, she's talking about wanting to basically force the children to learn how to read, but the tribal elder yes. doesn't want them to read. And her perspective as a European is... It's a power move to keep them illiterate, and if they become literate, then they will be able to write and understand their own stories. And Bob immediately says back, look, they have stories, they're just not written down. What makes you think that, like, because they're, I'm paraphrasing here, what makes you think because they're illiterate that they're stupid? And so there's an interesting tension there. Um, Josh, you wanted to say something with this? Well, in this scene, she refers to these people as my kukuyu, right. and oh, he even right. calls her out on that. He calls her out and says, "He says you're Kikuyu," and then yeah. he says he doesn't want he doesn't want to turn them into little Englishmen, which yes, is a very right? like an, yeah. very literal anti-colonialist statement. And then also he says in this scene, um, "We're not owners here, Karen. We're just passing through." Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's I, I, you're right. That's like an interesting idea that they don't really follow up on necessarily. Well, and and what's interesting about that contradiction is he says that, and yet he is someone who is living off and profiting from the exploitation of the resources of the land. Yep. And you get yeah. it in the contradiction the of this character of he loves animals more than people, but then he kills them. Right. He yeah. is a he is a big game hunter. He hunts literally in real life after uh after this film is somewhat set after Karen has gone back, the real Dennis and the real Brewer, her then by then ex husband, they started a safari uh company in which they hosted wealthy Europeans down to Africa to hunt the big five. The elephants, the the lions, the cheetahs, and or the giraffes, or whatever, whatever else big game you could were considered difficult at the time to hunt. There's, in fact, a photograph floating out there of the real Dennis and the real Roar with the future King Edward of England standing oh, I over... I you were going to say the Trump children. 
Uh, it's almost exactly like they're standing over the, the carcass of a dead lion, which they have successfully shot. So it's weird watching this film because as charismatic, as charismatic as Rob Redford is, the very beginning of the film is the only time we see him with, I believe, a, the ivory tusk. The rest of the film, the only the only time we actually ever see him kill an animal is in defense. We never actually see him hunting or killing an animal for sport or trade. Mm-hmm. One, one last thing I wanted to say about that New Year's scene is then when when first of all they don't count down to new year's like what the fuck kind of people are these there's no countdown <laughs> someone just announces it's new year's and then everybody breaks out into old lang's on and it's yep. interrupted yes. by some lady firing a pistol off which i think i need to throw around at my next party when someone wants to speak they got to fire a pistol in the air and and she starts them in the english national anthem yes. yeah. yeah and Perhaps it's heavy-handed, but again, I was looking for some sort of commentary and some sort of substance here. And to me, that seems like a pretty damning critique of these people's nationalistic and jingoistic colonial um, impetus there. That in this moment of celebrating a new year, which is conceivably something that everybody should be able to do, despite the fact that you didn't count it down, it's interrupted then by colonizing this moment in time in this space also as planting you know planting the flag of the king i literally noted noted down when i was watching the movie this is this ultimately by the end of the film ends up being my favorite scene in the whole movie exactly because when the the aristocratic old lady she fires off the gun i love by the way the fact that she shoots it they're indoors and you can you can see the the dust from the ceiling coming down on top of her as she's shooting and beginning to sing the national anthem. It perfectly embodies the ridiculous nature of colonialism that is seemingly just under the surface throughout this film, and yet Pollock doesn't really go anywhere with it. Or the film, I, I don't want to put it all on Pollock. Pollock and Ludic, they don't take the film anywhere beyond that. It's just it's okay. That seems to be enough. Colonialism is bad. Hey. Let's get back to watching Meryl Streep very slowly flirt with an icon of 20th century cinema. With with other characters, side characters, a quick shout out that uh, Lord D, as he asks people to call him. Michael Go. Yes, who you might know as Alfred from the Tim Burton Batman films. And he appeared in a lot and of And the Tim Joel Burton. Schumacher. Oh, that's and correct. And the Joel Schumacher. He's the, only, he's the only holdover, or him and the Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. Are the only two characters that make it across the Burton Jules Schumacher switch. And he was in a number of Hammer Horror films in the yep. 40s and 50s. He had like a 60 year screen career. Uh, so always good to see Michael go. One of you made a note that you wanted to talk about uh, the character of Markham. Yes. So Beryl, Beryl Markham is a real life, real, she's a real life woman. Um, and in within the film, she's the inspiration for the character of Felicity. Um, we don't really get much about Felicity in the movie. She's in it very little. She pops up, and every time you think that there might be something going on there, it doesn't really go there. I think there's a, there's a suggestion that she might be also with Dennis, or Dennis might be spending time with her. In real life, that was ultimately true. The real Beryl Markham was fascinating. This film really should have been adapted from her memoirs, which she also wrote. Uh, her, her, one, her one line that really spoke to me was when she said... I know I should try to make people like me, but I just prefer solitude. I'm like, oh, sis, I get you. And, and, and the real Beryl Markham, she lived that ideal. She was one of the very first bush pilots in Africa. So Beryl Markham was a female pilot. She was uh, 
born in England, but she uh, spent almost her entire childhood growing up in British East Africa. So she was raised in Ken- in what is now Kenya. Um, she does develop a relationship with Dennis after Karen goes back to, to Denmark in real life. Um, she's actually there when Dennis's plane is plane crashes. She's there at the actual funeral. I don't know if Karen came back for it. The film suggests Karen's still there when he dies. Uh, we can get to that. Some of the, the the creative choices made for the film, I guess, for the purposes of the drama and the romance of it. But in real life, Karen's long since gone back. Um, but Beryl Markham is probably most famous for, in 1936, nine years after um, Lindbergh, she's the first person to ever fly solo from Europe back to North America. It took nine years, probably because it's more challenging to fly uh, east to west, but she's the first person to make it from Europe back to North America by herself in an airplane. Um, not just the first woman, but the first person, period. Her personal life is also a bit exciting. She was a mistress of both Prince Edward and his younger brother, Henry, and Eesh. she was she was married at the time of her, oh. her affairs, and her she husband... Syphilis? I don't know, maybe, but okay. her husband successfully successfully uh, blackmailed the royal family into oh giving him money so that he wouldn't make it a public scandal. Um, she wrote a memoir, and I'm shocked, knowing that that memoir exists, that would have made for a hell of a more interesting, I think, film than out of Africa. Josh, your, your thoughts on Felicity? Well, just I don't want to say one thing about Felicity, and that is I love the scene where she's having like lunch with Karen. She's basically like trying to ask her about sex and mm-hmm. she's nervous about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she asked her all these questions and then Meryl Streep, she asked her all these like, you know, uh, questions about sex. And then Meryl Streep kind of leans back, lights a cigarette and says, I think you better call me Karen. Mm. <laughs> so, first of all, her lighting the cigarette before talking about sex was hilarious to me. Number two, uh, her requesting that familiarity, like call me Karen if we're going to talk about this kind of stuff. And that is, I think, a bit of a reference to like two or three scenes earlier where Dennis asked Karen, could you call me Dennis? Because oh, they were, yeah. like had met a few times by that point. And I, I can't even remember what she says to him in response to that request. But like clearly him saying, can you call me Dennis? And then a few scenes earlier, her connecting, calling me by your first name to like a intimate Mm-hmm. conversation i think is is telling of like where the dennis karen relationship is going that was that yeah, was the only thing i want to say about felicity yeah. that's a good catch yeah so where the film goes we've, we've pointed out some of kind of the interesting sidebars that it might have been able to take that it didn't really take and it always goes the less interesting route this whole movie takes the less interesting path i think that it could have taken like at any at any point, any juncture, it goes the less interesting route. Which, which is an adage of screenwriting: when you have a good idea, pick the more boring one. And uh, <laughs> but but I think ultimately, all three of us were sort of left with you know missed opportunities, etc., and with kind of a bad taste in our mouths about the framing of the race relations. Yo, is here. this racist? Yeah, I asked that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so Josh, you had a, I think you had a couple more things to talk about there with the African. Uh, yeah, 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 particularly yeah. The, the things that I bumped up against the most. Uh, again, it's a movie set in colonial times from the perspective of the colonialists. Like, right at the gate. <laughs> you're setting gonna, yourself up for some problems. <laughs> well, yeah, right at the gate. Like, we're going to bump up against it in a modern setting. And, okay, real quick before I get to the framing of the Africans part, which is my larger point. Uh, I thought of Lawrence of Arabia while watching this, which also is takes place during World War One, right? Yes. In colonial times and is the perspective of a British person in the arab world but like 
that was a little different to me because number one, I think Larry is a little bit more integrated into the local culture than yes. uh, Karen is. So that makes it a little different. And number two, that movie came out in what, 1962? Yep. It came out in 62 when like colonial, British colonialism at least was like pretty much coming to an end more or less. And it was like kind of right on the heels of the end of British colonialism. Yes, the Queen is. The, you know, they they started losing col- former colonies or countries to I mean, the, the Empire. Post World War Two, post World War Two, the British Empire started to slowly yep. get smaller. But like 1960, I think is when the British Empire really was kind of like colonialism was really is from the British standpoint starting to end. So like making a movie about that in 1962 is a little different to me than making one about it in 1985. And like it kind of reminded me like the out of Africa, Lawrence of Arabia comparison kind of reminded me of like something like Green Book, which Green Book in a vacuum, all three of us really don't like that movie. I think, <laughs> I think that's clear. But like Green Book in a vacuum, there's nothing like inherently wrong with it. It's just like very weird that came out in 2018. Yes. Like Green, I've said this before, Green Book could have been like one of the best movies of 1965, but like. To have, like, a movie about the racial politics of the 1960s South through the perspective of the canonically racist white character becoming less racist is a wild, wild, wild perspective to give your movie in 2018. Yes. And I think it's just, like, wrong-headed from the get-go. And I think Out of Africa is pretty wrong-headed from the get-go, too. You know? So, the framing of the African characters. Uh, there's a few things I, I spotted. Um, number one... You know, they're, edu- they're educating school children. That's great. They're teaching them to read. That's great. But, like, there's a scene where Bob Redford takes his gramophone out on safari with him. Oh, and yeah. Yep. He plays Mozart for some monkeys. And, like, again, in a vacuum, exposing monkeys to Mozart isn't terrible. But, like, in the context of the rest of the movie, where these are, like, white Europeans in Africa educating the Africans bringing them European culture to play Mozart from monkeys, like really, really bumped me. And like, I really raised my eyebrows at that. Uh, secondly, and more directly, um, there's a scene that we've kind of already talked about where a lioness approaches Karen. And I think it's very telling. This scene directly follows the scene where she tries to meet with a local tribe chief yes. to like, it, you know, have some diplomacy. So like the very next scene is like a wild animal, possibly attacking her, kind of like undercutting her attempted diplomacy, kind of undercutting, you know, underlining that she doesn't belong here and that like the local population, whatever that may be, is uh, adversarial towards her, I guess. But that that's honestly not the point I was going to make, though. The way that scene is shot and the way it's framed. Um, Which scene? The, the one with the, the Linus. leader? Okay. The Linus. Okay. The Linus. Karen's on the right side of the frame. Linus on the left side of the frame. They keep doing like shot reverse shot as it gets closer and closer. And then eventually it passes, like the tension's built up. She thinks it's about to attack. It's getting closer. She thinks it's about to attack. It's getting closer. She thinks it's about to attack. And then it eventually just passes by her without harming her. And when it passes by her, um, again, Karen's on the right side of the frame, Linus on the left. And like it passes by her to her right side. So it passes in the background and Karen's in the foreground, uh, meaning she was not actually in danger. It was passing by her. Sometime later, I believe it's when Karen is like trying to deliver supplies to her husband in World War One. A group of Maasai, Kenyan warriors, are out in the distance, and there is a very similarly shot sequence where the Maasai are approaching, and Karen and her companions are like, "Are we in danger? Are they about to attack?" And does a shot reverse shot framed exactly like the lion scene was framed, and they're like, "Are they about to attack? Are they about to attack? Do we need to like take cover or whatever?" And then 
framed exactly the same way. Karen on the right, Messiah on the left, Karen in the foreground, Messiah in the background, the Messiah passed her by and they weren't actually in danger. So again, it is through the framing and editing of those two sequences, it is equating the line with those Messiah people, which makes me very uncomfortable. And yeah, that's a big yikes. And hold on, I think I have one more example. Oh, (laughs) the very next scene after the Messiah people were, you know, the Karen was afraid of them, but they ended up not meaning them any harm. The very next scene, lions attack their camp and attack their oxen. And Karen has to whip a lion attacking her oxen. So again, it's like, where, what, what is dangerous? What are we afraid of? What's actually going to hurt us? Like, I don't know. And I thought like the filmmaking kind of like was not doing itself any favors from like a racist front. And... I, am, am I crazy for reading into this? I, or am I just reading the movie as it's telling it to me? I don't think you are. Um, I'll be honest. That first, The first encounter with the lioness, um, I actually saw a parallel with the scene that came before that. Um, you mentioned her going to see the, the tribal uh, Kukuya chief. chief yeah. But mm-hmm. on the way back, when she's leaving after meeting with the chief, she spots the injured Kukui boy. Mm-hmm. And she does. She watches. She kind of locks eyes with him and she kind of circles him first before then coming back to him. He doesn't react. He doesn't appear nervous or scared at all. And then in the next scene, she is terrified of that lion and she can't, even though Robert Redford's telling her what to do, she's still flipping out and wants him to shoot the lion. I saw a parallel more to the fact that, that she is out of her element at this point. Whereas that even a child, not at all thrown off by this, this white lady from Europe showing up and she apparently owns the land and she's the boss lady or whatever. He is not at all uh, moved by the fact that here she is coming right for him. No. Um, whereas I, I think I see your way too. I can see it both ways, but just because those two scenes came back to back with one another, that's what I picked up on the Maasai later on. I love that comparison though, Josh, because I didn't think about that at all. And Lots it is, of scenes back to yeah, back. it is a striking, they're, they're framed the exact same way. Yeah. It is a yeah. striking parallel. Um, the, the nighttime, I do want to just a shout out. It doesn't have to do with, um, how the, the Kukui people are framed, but the nighttime lion attack scene, um, that is actually Meryl Streep with a whip in her hand opposite the lion. You know what? It's kind of cool too. It is, yeah. It's kind of it's badass. With a lioness, um, it was kind of apparently cool. her. She had a stunt double, but the stunt double she she claimed in interviews later the stunt double had more sense, um, and I had none, and so she volunteered to go ahead and do it because it was one of the last nights of shooting in Africa before they went home, and she just was like, "Fine, let's do this." Um, yeah, so she's actually uh, there's like a there, they had a bunch of like I'm going to use air quotes here trained lions on set they're they brought them from california because it was actually illegal to use any wild lions or any local lions in kenya they had to ship lions in from california for this picture uh tj anything in response to my observations other than the two yikes that you gave well i like them i think they're they're thought-provoking observations that I think I got the kind of general gist of from the tone and approach of the film, but I was not myself equipped to put the kind of film vocabulary to it. So I buy it. I think that's a good argument. And like just overall, as I said, like a few times already, like the African characters are all set dressing, you know, and I just think the point of view of the movie is just kind of wrongheaded as I kind of made the Green Book comparison earlier. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to if you're going to tell this story set in this time and place, like why tell it from that point of view? It's just like sure. boring to me. It's just it's not like offensive. It's just uninteresting, you know, and that itself is offensive in a different way. 
Um, any any closing thoughts before I get to our last our typical last questions? Not in particular about the the film. I just gave my closing thoughts. Yeah. I'm good. Okay. So how Josh kind of answered this already, but how does this stack up to contemporary Best Picture nominees? This is the apotheosis of like boring, stately, costume drama e oscar movies like this is like yes yeah it's a staid epic period drama and we see a lot of them look i mean we argue you could argue the color purple is that way i mean it, not for nothing you get both sydney pollock and steven spielberg who by this time in 1985 are well respected they both make a hard left turn into a very different kind of film both we've we've argued in the color purple episode arguably because they're they're seeking out that kind of praise in the awards and it pays off for Pollock because come awards season, obviously this film just shovels in the awards. Um, it is a different film for Pollock, just as Color Purple was for for Spielberg. And they're they're running on the same the same kind of through line as as Giant and Peyton Place and Cleopatra, Doctor Shivago, and we get Sense and Sensibility later, and you get Chariots of Fire a few years before this. I think the year before this is a passage to India, another big epic uh imperialism or con- colonialism set film um it, it's just kind of a stereotype and this film is kind of a poster for it i think this has been answered in so many words but does this deserve its best picture nomination um we we talked about this in the 1948 recap and i'm sure we will talk about this throughout this podcast but like the academy is just trying to, is trying to promote movies and trying to project a certain image of the industry and of its of its body of the academy itself the movies they choose to honor is very telling about how they see themselves and how they see the industry and the image they want to project to the world and the fact that they're like choosing to celebrate this in 1985 is so fascinating to me and not in a good way and <laughs> that's a salient critique and i think it becomes obvious when you're looking back you know 40, 60, 80 years. It's something they mm-hmm. still do, though. It yeah. is something they still do, but like we now have 40 years of hindsight that we can kind of assess it in a different way. Um, I mean, we, we kind of already have talked about like the 2000s Best Picture winners and how they kind of reflected the political moment. Like We're kind of just now getting to a point where we can assess those in a larger context. Um, but you're right. They, they still do this. They still do this. I'm not like absolving the Modern Academy because they're still doing it a little differently. But like, you know, the Modern Academy is more international. And so they are kind of slowly starting to make a little bit of change in progress and like what what kind of people are voting on this. But like, can you imagine for a second a voting body with enough international members would give this movie a second thought, let alone give it best picture? It's it's such a white centric movie, you know, like it's very much a European centric, American centric movie. And like it's it's it suffers for that. It suffers for that perspective, as I've said like four times now. Yeah, hi- historically, it just doesn't hold up. At the time in 1985, look, it's a relatively big budget. It's epic. It's long. Um, they actually filmed it in Kenya. It's clear that they filmed it in Kenya. And to his credit, Pollock did a lot of pre-production work prepping for this movie. And Hollywood kind of knows that at the time when they're voting right on this movie. And the second unit was incredible. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. the second unit did great work. It, and it, it does boggle the mind in retrospect how this movie managed to win Best Picture along with six other Academy Awards, how it got all those 11 nominations. And it made $650 million well, yeah, I mean, adjusted for inflation. It, Holy shit. Winning, winning seven Oscars, including Best Picture, doesn't mean you're a good movie seen no. two weeks ago. But 
Okay. TJ's referencing the fact that by this point, it happened like f- three months ago, but a few weeks ago, everything everywhere at once won Best Picture and seven, movie, seven, seven Oscars, and TJ doesn't like it. Is that right? I'll let my words speak for themselves. <laughs> the fact... Okay. Well, I think the fact is, even in 1985, I, it is confusing that this wins. I think even in 1985, for me, I'm not surprised that it's nominated, but the fact that so many people went to see this movie and so many people walked away from it, apparently, thinking, wow, that was a great movie. That does surprise me a little because this isn't 1962 to Josh's point earlier. This is 85 and I I have some expectations that clearly are not being met by the era. I think you both also answered in in France. Would this be nominated today? Absolutely no. not. Well, <laughs> this wouldn't be this would be this, derided. Yes, this movie wouldn't <laughs> be made like this at all today. Well, granted, Green Book won best picture 4 years ago. So this is maybe I, don't I think this is more about. blatant, though. I think this is taking that to the next level. Do you see my comparison? Yeah, though, I do. Of like the, the point of view and the perspective. Yes. And like, it's wild to take that perspective telling that story in Green Book. It's it, in 2023. It would be wild to take this perspective telling this story. It would you know? it would have been and, like making 12 Years a Slave with Fassbender being your central character. It's I mean, not, yeah, or like Benedict Cumberbatch or, or, yeah, that, or Paul or, Giamatti. Yeah, or like, yeah, it's, it's get out of here. Weird. Um it's inappropriate and uncomfortable. Even ignoring that, this movie is just boring. It's it's wild how like this met my expectations of boringness. Yes, because like <laughs> my expectations were this is gonna be a tough sit. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you this. Uh, first of all, it took me two nights to watch this. I watched the first forty minutes the first night, and I watched the second two hours the next day. The next day, uh, those two hours. Took me like four hours to get through. It's a because I just kept taking like. Did you play it on fifty like, percent speed? <laughs> no, but like you know, I, I try not to look I at my had phone. A farm in Africa. <laughs> it's a slog. I try not to look at my phone when I'm watching a movie, but sometimes I do because my I get bored. But like I'm the kind of person that will pause the movie if I look away from it for a minute. If I get up to go get more water, if I get up to go to the bathroom, I will pause it. Or you know, if I get extremely bored watching Meryl Streep, you know whatever plant coffee beans so i <laughs> pull up twitter instead i'll pause it but again watching two hours of this movie took me four hours in my life basically and that's kind of think telling well i think that is a very concluding final statement here for us <laughs> um and uh that so that's that's out of africa for you um do you, do you recommend this to anybody i would not like I said, like the stuff to recommend is just it's Bob Redford, Meryl Streep, and it looks nice, and the music's nice. But it's two hours and forty minutes. The yeah. only people I might recommend this to probably saw this movie in theaters in nineteen eighty five. I don't need to recommend it to anybody. I, I honestly don't. So, that's been our adequate discussion of Out of Africa. <laughs> Next week on Serious Film People, the fourth episode in our nineteen eighty five series, we will be watching and discussing. John Huston's Pritzy's Honor. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah, we're coming back to John Huston after just uh, we we just there talked we about Treasure. Sure thing. I also have not seen this, but I have. I mean, anyone who's listened to the last three episodes will know I didn't really care for the first three episodes in this 1985 series. I have a lot higher expectations for the next two movies yes. that we're going to watch. Hoping, we're so I, I hope I like these two a lot more than the first three. And I think I will. We shall see. Stay tuned next we'll find time out. to find out, Josh's, find out yeah. Josh's take on Pritzy's Honor. Um, yeah, that's all for me. Uh, I will sign off shortly here. Uh, we've been getting a lot of engagement online. So thank you for 
your comments and for adding to the conversation. We definitely appreciate the support with that. So we see you. We hear you. Thank you so much. You can follow us on, I guess, on Twitter. I think we're at Spheres Phone People. It might be PPL. It's PPL, I think. Okay, on Twitter. Um, You can email us, SeriousPhonePeople at gmail.com if you'd like. Uh, I'll I'll print them out and then read them and then handwrite a response and type it. I don't know what that's going to do, but I follow your heart. Um, and we're also on uh, TikTok. I think we're at Serious Film People, the whole word people on TikTok, though. But yes. Yeah, you can, so. you can find us places and, you know, participate if you like. Yeah. All right. That's all. Have a great week. Thanks. Thanks.